You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Before you sit down, why don't you go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Dragon and the Dragon Slayer. Dragon and the Dragon Slayer. You may be seated. Well, welcome to Plus Life and, of course, to our Christmas service. I hope everyone gets to stick around for the food. I see some new faces here, so just in case you don't know me, I am Pastor Ian, the lead pastor here at Plus Life Church. Um, just maybe some quick facts. I have a wife. I have some kids. Some of the kids, some of my kids, were the ones singing here. Two of which were were here, and you can guess which ones. Probably the best ones. And you don't, you know. Um, but yeah, and something maybe a little more so that you know me and where I'm coming from. Uh, my church knows this, but I'm a big nerd. Uh, I love all sci-fi, fantasy, everything of the sort. I grew up with that, and. Some of, the, some of my, my favorite stories growing up were, were the tales of heroes and knights going off to slay some sort of beast or some sort of dragon. Uh, one of uh, my favorite stories was a story that my grade two teacher, shout out to Miss Tidy Russell, uh, she told us back in the day the story of St. George and the dragon. Who knows this story? One person, amen, no one reads books anymore. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, but the story of St. George and the dragon actually dates all the way back to the third century. A Christian knight by the name of George. And he was on his travels. He comes across a town that was being played by this dragon. And this town had given themselves to sacrificing their children uh, to this dragon in order to just sort of to, to placate its, its wrath and its, its hunger. Uh, and then the last child that was being offered up to this, to this dragon was, of course, the town's, uh, the town's princess, so to speak. And George comes along, slays the dragon, and then he, as for his reward, he asks the town to convert to Christianity. It's a great story. You should look it up. But the stories of dragons and dragon slayers, of heroes killing beasts, is not isolated to European folklore or mythology. In fact, we see these sort of tales all across the globe from every culture. In Japan, you have the story of Susano killing uh, this dragon called Orochi. Where are, where are my anime lovers here? No one wants to put their hand up. Everyone feels ashamed. That's okay. There's grace here at church. Don't worry. Uh, but there's other cultures too. You have Hercules killing the Hydra. You have Thor killing the Midgard serpent. You have uh, all the way back to Mesopotamia, the story of Marduk killing this, this dragon called Tiamat. Now, for, for all of human history and all of human culture, there has been this story, a, a, a tale as old as time of some sort of evil creature, an evil dragon being hunted and slain by a dragon slayer. Is this a coincidence? Who thinks this is a coincidence by a raise of hands? Good. Nobody does. Because if, if we live in a world where God is sovereign, nothing is a coincidence, where everything has a purpose and a, a reason to it. Additionally, if we believe the Bible and we believe what it tells us in terms of the origins and the end of man, 
we can trace this idea of a dragon and a dragon slayer back to a common point in human history. And I believe that point is the creation and fall of humanity, the passage that we just read. It's interesting to note that in the original Hebrew, the word for serpent that we now translate as snake was nakash. And in all of Jewish history and Middle Eastern mythology, that word always represented dragon, not snakes. It's always been dragon. In Jewish folklore, they believed, in fact, that this serpent in the Garden of Eden that we just read about was, in fact, a dragon, a serpentine-like creature with legs and arms, at least until the fall where it was cursed to crawl on its belly and eat the dust of the earth. This dragon wasn't just a physical creature, but it was, in fact, considered to be the embodiment of what was evil. As our passage in Genesis 3 tells us, this dragon is the source of the fall of man, of the disobedience, of sin coming into the world, of darkness and evil slithering into God's good creation. It's how chaos entered into God's ordered world. It's how death entered into God's creation full of life. Yes, humanity was completely responsible for their disobedience in the garden, but as we just read, it's the serpent, the dragon, who's at the root of it. But our passage, the, our passage is not without hope, because it's not just about the dragon and how man fell. Our passage also promises of one who would come to slay this dragon, one who would come to crush the dragon's head, the serpent's head, and set things back to order from chaos, from, from, to bring light from the darkness, to bring good from what was turned evil. This hope, this promise given to humanity at, this, at, at, at humanity's lowest and darkest point in history, this hope and this promise that has been passed down from generation to generation, from culture to culture. It's why I believe we have all of these tales of dragons and dragon slayers in different cultures around the world. In fact, we even see this hope and this promise passed down throughout biblical narrative, even the biblical timeline. For example, if we recall the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness, in Numbers chapter 21, when they became, uh, they became plagued with these so-called fiery serpents. And Moses had to construct a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. By the way, the same word there for serpent in Nakash is dragon. And those who would look upon this bronze serpent, who would look upon the defeated serpent, would find healing. In the same way, in the, in the book of Judges chapter 4, we read about the female judge Deborah. And this villain named Sisera that she had been facing off with. And we read how this, this, this man named Sisera found his end at the hands of a servant girl named Jael who took a tent spike and, and, and hammered it through his skull that went straight to the ground. What's interesting is the name Sisera is the Canaanite word for dragon or serpent. In addition to that, we all know the story of David and Goliath. One of my favorite stories from when I was a kid, too. But it's interesting how the Bible describes the clothing, or the, rather the armor of Goliath. It says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of that coat was 5,000 5, shekels of bronze. 
It's interesting in the original Hebrew that the, the idea of the, this coat of mail, the kind of armor that Goliath was wearing, is actually better translated to scale mail. It's a type of armor that is constructed by putting layers upon layers of, of metal on top of each other to, to imitate the scales of a... I'm glad no one said fish, right? <laughs> the scales of a dragon. And of course, how did Goliath meet his end? By a stone that crushed his skull, his head. See, in biblical studies, there's no coincidences. This is what is known, these parallels are, is what is known as a type or a typology. It's recurring themes in scriptures that foreshadows a major event in God's salvific work, the salvific narrative. And it all stems from this passage, our main passage this morning, Genesis 3.15, the promise of the dragon's defeat at the hands of a dragon slayer. Again, our passage says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I know what everyone's thinking this morning. Everyone say it with me. What does, come on, all everyone together. What does this have to do with Christmas? Amen. Thanks for asking. Well, let me explain. I'm not just nerding out, by the way. This passage in Genesis 3.15 is also known as a proto-evangelium, the first good news. The first promise of the advent of a Savior, the coming of a Savior who would come to, to reverse the effects of the fall, the consequences of the fall. This passage is a first account of the hope that we are celebrating today and what we celebrate throughout the Christmas season, that a Savior would be born to save us. The first Christmas story. And it's, by the way, it's all here. Even, even the virgin birth. Look at this with me. Verse 15 again, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. A better translation of the word offspring there is seed in the original Hebrew. Now, anyone who has taken grade six health class knows that women don't have seeds. They have eggs. And I'll just leave it at that. But So it's very much interesting that, that it's saying here that in God's curse to the serpent, that he's saying that the offspring of the serpent and the offspring or the seed of this woman are going to be at odds with each other. And this is a very specific prophecy because it promises that one day a woman would conceive and give birth to a male child without, without ever having slept with a man, without ever having known a man. This is the story of the virgin birth. Of course, Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That's the Christmas story right there. The dragon slayer who comes to defeat this dragon is going to be born of a virgin. That's what this promise declares. The woman's seed. And of course, that woman's seed is Jesus Christ. It may not have the nativity, it might not have the, the shepherds and the angels and the star and three wise men, but this story, this passage in Genesis is in fact the Christmas story. And, and I think it's a, an important depiction of the Christmas story because it frames the advent, it frames the holidays in a light in which we ought to see it. And, and sometimes we forget with all the busyness of things, with the festivities and the gatherings and the demonic shelves on elves, it's, it's an important way to see the holidays because it helps us, it, it, 
reminds us of why Jesus came in the first place. It reminds us of the truths of the Christmas season, and which the typical nativity scene doesn't always communicate to us, or doesn't always portray. Ultimately, their passage tells us why the Son of God set aside his glory and clothed himself with humanity so that he could be with us, so that he can save us. So my hope for us this morning as we go through this sermon is that we would be reminded what Christmas is all about, why we celebrate Christmas, what we celebrate, why this typology of the dragon and the dragon slayer is important in this portrayal of, portrayal of Christmas and, and, and communicating the importance and the truths of Christmas. And my hope is that we would come away from this with a deeper appreciation of the holidays a greater hope in our Savior, a better reason to celebrate the holidays. And not just because, you know, we get free food or free gifts. So why is the story of the dragon and the dragon slayer important? Why is it such a crucial theme in our understanding of what Christmas is? First and foremost, it proclaims the dragon's defeat. It proclaims the dragon's defeat. Let me just read this passage again real quick. Here's the, we're at, let's start at verse 14, at the curse of the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise her head, and you shall bruise his heel. What we just read describes a partial and an ultimate defeat of this so-called dragon. This partial defeat of the serpent is, of course, when he's cursed, and he's cursed to crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the earth. Hey, I have a question for you. Why was the serpent defeated? Because he was disarmed. Get it? Tough crowd. Tough crowd. All right. I'm a dad now, so I have these dad jokes, but... It's not appreciated here. That's okay. We'll pray for you. But this idea of eating dust, the eating dust of the earth, is always connotated to an army or a kingdom or a king that has been defeated. They're eating the dust as, in the, as if they're groveling. And this is also associated with snakes because they crawl on their bellies. But it's interesting that the way that the, the, that the Bible describes it is that snakes are meant to be a reminder that the enemy has been defeated. In fact, even when the Bible describes the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ comes and restores everything and sets up his kingdom, it's interesting what the Bible says in Isaiah 65 when it's describing that time period. It says, Isaiah 65, verse 25, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. I love that. Because it's saying that for all of eternity, even after Christ has come and restored creation, the snakes will continue to eat the dust of the earth to remind us that the dragon, the serpent from the beginning, has already been defeated, has always been defeated. But that's the partial defeat of this dragon. But we also see the ultimate defeat in the crushing of the serpent's head. When I was young, we were living in a, an apartment building that was next to this great open field. And uh, as a boy, I liked to go and you know, have adventures in that field and look around and find whatever sorts of creatures in, in, that, in that field. I, I like to pretend that I was uh, the crocodile hunter. Remember him, right? Steve Irwin. And then one day, I actually flipped over a rock and I found a, a garter snake. 
right? And if you've ever watched Crocodile Hunter, he always picks up the snake. He picks up the snake by the tail, right? And he says, oh, isn't she a beauty? And I did that. I, I, I literally said that. Oh, crikey. Oh, look at this beauty. And then the snake tried to attack me. And then I, I, and very quickly it became biblical because I dropped the snake and I, I stomped on its head. And this passage came to mind <laughs> of the serpent's head being crushed. But it, because this is exactly what's being depicted here, that this, uh, that this serpent, this dragon would be crushed. Its head would be crushed by this dragon slayer. Now, we know that the serpent, this dragon in this passage, as represents the devil and Satan himself. There's references throughout that in Scripture. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in the hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's explicitly saying that the serpent, this dragon, is meant to be the devil, the Satan himself. And there's a partial and ultimate destruction that is designated for the devil, depending on your eschatological views, of course. But sure enough, the defeat of the dragon is what Christ accomplished at the cross. In Colossians, it talks about how Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Those rulers and authorities that he's talking about are the powers of darkness, the demons and devils under the authority of Satan. And Jesus at the cross put them to open shame. In, in ancient times, when kings would conquer another nation, they would take their rulers and parade them in the streets to show how they have been defeated. And that's what Jesus did to the enemy. But this proclamation of the dragon's defeat again, goes beyond the subjugation of Satan. As mentioned, dragons in the Bible, and really even throughout human culture, embody chaos and evil and darkness and sin and death. The creature who brought about the fall of creation. So why is this proclamation of the dragon's defeat so crucial to our Christmas story? Because this is what Christ came to defeat. Those are the things that Christ came to defeat. Not just the devil, not just Satan, but darkness and evil and sin and death. In the story of the nativity in the Gospel of Luke, Luke describes how how angels appeared to a group of shepherds in a field one night. And what did the angels proclaim? They said in Luke chapter 2 verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Then all of heaven rends open and the choirs of angels sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. That is great and this is what we celebrate and we recall every Christmas season. But have you ever stopped to wonder how can one not fear? How can one have joy and how can the earth experience peace when there is still evil and sin and darkness and death and suffering in the world. The reason we can have that hope and that joy and the reassurance of peace is because of this great proclamation that the dragon who embodies all of that has now been defeated at the advent 
of Jesus Christ, the dragon slayer. The devil has been bounded. The dragon has been defeated. That's the reason why we can look forward to having joy and celebrate hope and peace in the Christmas season. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ came to fulfill this great proclamation of the dragon's defeat. And not just, again, the devil, but the defeat of sin and darkness and death, the, the enemy of humanity. That's why it's good news. And this proto-evangelium, our passage this morning in Genesis, is very specific as well in how the dragon slayer would slay this serpent. This dragon, again it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The dragon slayer crushes the head of the serpent, but at the cost of wounding and suffering himself. The story of the dragon and the dragon slayer is important for our understanding in the Christmas holidays because it predicts the dragon slayer's death. It predicts the dragon slayer's death. Christmas, again, is a celebratory time full of joy and hope and family gatherings. But in reality, we know that it's not the end of the story. We know that the full story is that the Savior who came as a babe grows up to die on a cross. And he does so in order to achieve the peace on earth that the holidays promises. The baby that was born in a manger grows up so that we can have true joy. He grows up to die. In fact, that, that is the significance of Christ even being born in a manger in the first place. It's not a coincidence that, that he was born in a manger. Like I said, there's no coincidences with a sovereign God. It wasn't just because there was no room at the inn. When the angels appeared to those shepherds and declaring the good news, they also say in verse 12, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Why is this sign so specific to these shepherds? Why would this be a sign in the first place? Because the shepherds would have known that the lambs that were born in the mangers of Bethlehem, the city of David, were special. Special in that they would eventually be sacrificed during Passover. Historically speaking, that's where the high priests of the temple would gather their lambs from, Bethlehem. See, even at his birth, Christ was already proclaiming his death. Because that's what was necessary for the dragon of, of sin and evil and darkness and chaos and death to be defeated. The death of the dragon slayer. Contrary to these other tales and these other stories of the hero overcoming the beast, overcoming the dragon with brute strength or intellect or some sort of weapon, the dragon slayer of the Bible, Jesus Christ, overcomes the dragon by giving his own life. That's the story of Christmas. Jesus came to die. He came to sacrifice himself. And that sacrifice is not without reason or purpose. In all these tales of dragons and heroes, 
There's always a reason to slay the dragon apart from it being evil and destroying things. There's a people being terrorized. There's a princess to be saved. Similarly, the story in Genesis, what necessitated the death of the dragon at the cost of the dragon slayer, was a desire to redeem, to deliver a fallen people. In the story in Genesis of the dragon and the dragon slayer is important because it promises our deliverance. Our deliverance. Let's summarize what happened in Genesis really quick here. A holy God creates all of the universe. Creates it good and beautiful. Then he places humanity in the midst of a garden and tells humanity to take care of it. He places humanity in a place where, where everything that we could have ever asked for and ever wanted was there at our, at our picking. And the only rule that God gives us is don't eat of this tree. The dragon slithers into the scene and in an act of rebellion, cosmic treason, humanity chooses to follow its own authority and disobeys God. As a result, we fell into darkness. We became spiritually dead. Humanity and all of creation was, were plunged into darkness, into chaos. And as punishment deserving of that cosmic treason that we see, God curses all the guilty parties. Can you imagine that? God gives us everything. He gives a place for humanity to enjoy, a paradise. We don't need to, where we, we don't need to work for food. It's just on the trees. He gives us everything good. He even gives Adam a wife without having to go on any social media app to find one. He gives him everything good in exchange for that. Humanity disobeys God, rebels against God. But in the midst of that curse, in the midst of that disastrous event, God says this, and I love this, and oftentimes when we read this passage, we might skip over it. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Some secular scholars like to propose that this story is like Jewish folklore to explain why women are afraid of snakes. Any women here afraid of snakes? This is why, because the Bible, this is the reason why, apparently. And if you're not afraid of snakes, you should be afraid of snakes, because the Bible says you should be afraid of snakes. And guys, if you're, any, any guys afraid of snakes? I'll pray for you, Mark. But again, the Bible goes deeper than that. It's not so trivial as to explain why people are afraid of snakes. God is very specific with his words. This word enmity here in the original Hebrew is ibah, meaning deep animosity or hatred between two parties, two persons. The curse of enmity is between the serpent and the woman and her offspring. Now, biblically speaking, 
Prior to the advent of Christ, this curse doesn't at all make sense. It doesn't make sense. The Bible says about fallen humanity, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Then in verse 13, Paul even equates fallen humanity to the serpent himself. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus even says to the unbelieving crowd that they are like their father, the devil, and they do the will of their father, the devil. So how is it then that part of God's curse on the serpent is enmity, hostility, animosity between the serpent, the devil, the dragon, and humanity, the offspring of Eve? How is that possible when clearly we're on the same side, according to Scripture? When clearly fallen humanity in our sinfulness, we're in league with the enemy. Again, children of the devil. We, we do his will. We do his work. And not just, not just sort of reluctantly, the Bible says that we willfully and, and delight in doing the enemy's work. It says in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In our sin nature, in our natural state, we love the darkness. We, we, we followed after the will and the works of darkness. So how is, how is enmity, animosity, hatred possible between the serpent and the woman and her offspring. John explains it this way. First John chapter 3, verse 8 to 9. Whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, talking about Advent, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Church, the reason why enmity between the serpent and the woman is possible is because God, through the death of the dragon slayer, Jesus Christ, will create, would create for himself a people born of God who would obey after God, who would follow after God, who would follow God's will, who would love God, and as a result, would hate the devil, would hate the enemy, the dragon. See, this is why Christ came, why we celebrate the Advent, the Christmas, the Christmas season. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil so that we can be born again, redeemed, regenerated. And note, by the way, if you missed it, this redemption is all by God's hand, by his work, by his grace. It's undeserved, it's unmerited. It's promised to humanity at humanity's worst place in history. When betrayal was still fresh, when the fires of disobedience were still hot, God promises this hope of redemption when we contributed nothing except for the sin that made it necessary. And 
And all, all of this, all of this, is because God loves us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen to this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is why the story of the dragon and the dragon slayer, this proto-evangelium, is so important. Why it's really what, what undergirds the Christmas story. Because at the end of the day, we, we chose to love the dragon. But God, choosing to love us, came and died for us. That's grace. Again, there's, there's nowhere in that story where, where our efforts, our, our works, our goodness, our righteousness is involved. It's all by the hand of God, all his efforts, all his love. That's what we celebrate during Christmas. It's why we give gifts to each other. Gifts that aren't worked for. Gifts that are, aren't merited. That we didn't do anything to deserve. Don't believe the Santa nonsense. That, were you a good boy? Were you a bad boy? Guess what? We all deserve coal. That's the reality of it. We were all in the naughty list. But God being loving, God being good, plans from the beginning to save us. It says in, it says in the Bible that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And listen, this gift that we receive from God of his love, of a renewed relationship, of redemption, just like any other gift needs to be received. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in him. That's how you receive. It's not, well, I've attended church X amount of times? Well, I've given this much to the poor. Well, I've, I've done all of these things so that I can, I can be good, a good person, a, a role model. That's not how you receive this gift. This gift of a relationship with God is by faith. Faith is simply... It's simply the act of throwing your hands in the air when you've realized that you can do nothing to save yourself, to redeem yourself, to escape sin, to escape the wrath of God, and you're throwing your hands in the air saying, God, I cannot save myself. Only you can. Only what you have done on the cross. 
Only what you have done in the grave. That's the hope of Christmas. That God offers to us the free gift of salvation through his son who came and died on the cross. That's what we celebrate. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.